Hi, I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and this is Still Pretty. We're here today to talk about Double Meat Palace, the 12th episode of season six. It aired on January 29th, 2002, and was written by Jane Espenson, with Rebecca Rand Kirshner and Stephen S. DeKnight as story editors. This episode was directed by Nick Mark, who's done four episodes of Buffy so far, and he's done them in the standard house Buffy style. But because of the 1970s paranoid sci-fi references here, Mark had to meld that style with something well, a little different. And it came out a little weird. Let's talk about it. That's great. That's, that's just great. I try to do the simplest thing in the world, get an ordinary job in a well-lit place, and look, I'm right back where I started. Blood and death and funky smells. As anyone who's listened to me talk about Buffy probably already knows, Double Meat Palace has never really been one of my favorite episodes. Well, Jane Espenson is a writer made specifically to delight me. The references here kind of require a familiarity with Soylent Green and its particular subset of sci-fi thriller that 1970s paranoid guy is right the whole time movie. While I'm familiar with Soylent Green as a pop culture reference, I'd never seen a minute of the movie until I got to do this review, and it made it really hard to appreciate the context of the episode. Earlier, I went on YouTube and I watched a few clips, which helped me understand part of why Double Meat Palace has always put me off. The stark visual style, the harsh shadows, the exaggerated off-balance shot composition, the heightened musical cues, it all speaks to an aesthetic that is, put simply, not Buffy. But even aside from the visual weirdness, Double Me Palace has always put me off because I just hate watching Buffy deal with everyday woes like full copper repipes and paying the mortgage. I think it's brilliant storytelling to put Buffy in front of these challenges that are so new and unusual for her, but personally, it just makes me mad. You mean to tell me that the Watchers Council can afford to fully employ a host of potential Watchers and fly them over from the other side of the world to harass Buffy and Checkpoint, but they can't kick a slayer some of that sweet watching cash? And we have great Dawn in this episode when she laments Buffy's lack of any future that isn't slain and minimum wage work. She sees her own potential for a future against Buffy's and feels how unfair it is. And I'm with you, Dawn. That shit ain't right. But that's not how this world was built. I have to accept it and I have to move on. So we have this very strong 1970 sci-fi reference that I feel overpowers the Buffy in this episode. We've got Buffy being a broke working slayer, which drives me nuts. But aside from that, there's legit good stuff in this episode. We deal with Willow and Buffy trying to figure out their identities and struggling with temptation. We get some much needed acknowledgement of the things that are wrong with Xander and Anya. And we get the delightful Callie Rocha back from her earlier turn as Cecily in season five's phenomenal Fool for Love. So there are definitely good things here. All right, let's get into the weeds. It's like Sleepless in Seattle if, if Meg and Tom were like minced. As I mentioned, the Double Meat Palace sequences are highly visually stylized to reference the aesthetic of the Soylent Green type movies, and as such, it overpowers pretty much everything else in those scenes. The effect of this stark visual digression, while nailing the reference itself, makes it feel like it's not really an episode of Buffy. 
Now, it's okay to step outside of the standard Buffy house style when we're doing a specific thing. We've seen Hush, which was much more cinematic than the typical Buffy episode at the time, and Once More with Feeling, which was shot in a more saturated 50s musical style. Um, I think the problem for me here is that the reference is a bit obscure. In 2002, Soylent Green was already almost 30 years old, and aside from the Soylent Green is people freak out from Charlton Heston, it wasn't a strong pop culture reference to begin with, at least I don't think it was. Also, it seems like instead of pulling the reference into Buffy, as we did with Hush and Once More with Feeling, we're yanking Buffy into the reference, which puts the balance off. I mean, the concept itself is interesting. Buffy tries to be ordinary and still has to wrestle demons. And there's the classic Espensonian humor that I love, like when Buffy says the training video is like Sleepless in Seattle if Meg and Tom were minced. That is very cute. But we go so far into the reference, even to the point of having Buffy carted away while shouting, it's people, it's people, that it feels like a bit of a Sunnydale fever dream. And because of that, the double meat palace as monster of the week doesn't quite land for me. I also don't understand the strange misdirect when Buffy questions Manny, the manager. He seems to know something about the missing employees and is obviously covering for something. Now, in hindsight, we know that Double Meat Palace is keeping a secret. Its meat is actually vegetables. But that's not what Buffy's asking about, and we don't know that in the moment. And it seems to me that if you work for a place where people keep disappearing without a trace, you'd be extra motivated to discover what's going on. But he seems to be deliberately covering something up. Later, when we find out a demon is preying on the Double Meat employees, and poor Manny and his tragic saddle shoes have fallen to that very fate, it all just ceases to make any sense at all. Overall, I find the setting a little gross, which it's supposed to be. The old lady slash like lamprey demon effect is completely revolting, but it's supposed to be. And it's done well for that intention. I just don't particularly enjoy watching it. I don't think that necessarily means it's not well done. Ha! Well done. It's a meat pun. But anyway, it's just not something that I am going to really enjoy. I can respect the work itself, though. The writing is strong and the direction is dead on. I just think it's a misstep for Buffy. What I do like is Buffy's struggle with her identity, trying to be ordinary for at least part of her life and taking that effort all the way into the alley for a less than romantic interlude with Spike. Which brings us to our next topic. What's in the double meat nuggets? I'm working. Go away. Yeah, and you chose to be in the consumer service profession, and I'm a consumer. Service me. There isn't much Spike and Buffy in this episode, but what we get is actually pretty well drawn. I like when Spike shows up at Double Meat Palace, although he feels like the rest of the cast in that setting really out of place. He flirts with her and then confronts her with her true nature, or at least his vision of her true nature. He hints that she's a demon and she rejects that, but he also tells her that she's not a normal girl, and that much is true. He tells her that she's better than this, that this place will kill her. And while that's a reference to the real and present danger of the rapidly disappearing double meat workforce, it's also a pretty clear reference to him. She's better than him, and he is slowly killing her, at least metaphorically. And when she takes him out to the back alley for demeaning, dirty, next-to-the-dumpster sex, we can see this reality in the dead look in her eyes. She's not enjoying herself, and she's losing her own soul piece by piece as she continues this destructive relationship with Spike. Look, y'all know that I am as much a Spuffy fan as the next girl, but we all have to accept that at this stage, for all of Spike's charms, he is still a monster. And the monster bill always comes due, eventually. It's... 
chemistry. You can tell by how damn slow it is. So while we're dealing with identity stories, we have the reappearance of Amy causing trouble for Willow. Amy has gone from just a bad influence to an actual force of malevolence, shooting Willow up with magic against her will, even though Amy knows full well that Willow is trying to quit. And I have to wonder, why does Amy do this? The town is lousy with magic and demons. She can't find another playmate. Why is it so important for her to mess with Willow? Amy plays it off as a birthday gift, but the look in her eyes when she shoots Willow up isn't playful. It's malevolent, and it makes me wonder what her game is here. She makes a cutting remark at the end of the episode about all those years that Willow failed to make her not a rat, but vengeance doesn't really seem to fit either. I can't figure it out. At the end, when Amy shows up at the house, the confrontation with Willow is reflective of the Buffy and Spike material earlier in the episode. Once again, we have a destructive relationship with one person trying to tell the other who they are and being dead wrong. Amy says, you're not denying that you had fun, but we witnessed absolutely no fun for Willow. She melted a vase, she incinerated a lamp and rubberized a pencil, but she didn't seem to enjoy it. And when she could have used some speedy magic to determine the nature of the double meat burger, she pulled out her chemistry set instead. She didn't seem terribly tempted by the magic, although in her intercom confession with Buffy later at the Double Meat Palace, she acts like a junkie fell off the wagon. It's not exactly what happened. And then again, the final confrontation with the Lamprey Lady, Willow doesn't need magic. She uses a weapon and slays when Buffy can't, exhibiting her actual strength and capability with or without magic. And I really, really like that. This reflection here between Amy and Spike is interesting, but it doesn't exactly line up perfectly. While I understand Spike's motivation to get Buffy to believe his narrative of things, I don't really get Amy's. Aside from that, Willow's non-consensual dance with magic doesn't seem to do much for the story or for Willow's arc, really. She didn't ask for the magic. She didn't seem to enjoy it. She managed not to use it. It wasn't a struggle with temptation. She was a little twitchy in the episode, but her active choices are all correct, so it doesn't seem to do much for Willow's arc, aside from making an enemy out of Amy. And that's not really a thing because we won't see Amy again for another year. She's not part of this season's arc after this episode. It is always fun to see Elizabeth Ann Allen as Amy, though. She's adorable, and I love her, and I look forward to her return. It's not like you're so perfect either, what with your strangely large upper arms and your tendency to criticize. Huh? In one of the stronger, more traditional storylines in this episode, we get the introduction of Hal Freck, Anya's old friend from her vengeance demon days. Played delightfully by Callie Rocha, Hal Freck is a fun addition to the cast of characters. No one has more insight into bad relationships than a vengeance demon, and she finally gives voice to all the things we've been thinking about Anya and Xander pretty much from the beginning. He criticizes her a lot, and he doesn't seem to respect her at all. Especially cutting was Halfrick's question, who told you it wasn't easy to love you? That is a heartbreaking moment, and Anya's slow realization during this discussion is poignant and touching, though incredibly sad. Anya's denial about this is also incredibly realistic. When you're in it, you don't see it. But after Halfrek opens her eyes, she has this wonderful, strong moment when she goes in and directly confronts Xander about the way that he talks to her during the Scooby meeting at the magic shop. And then when Xander chooses to focus on his recent meal of maybe people and on Anya's possible veininess in her former demon state, instead of listening to her and understanding what he's doing to her, which is slowly bleeding her by a thousand cuts, it's really tough to watch, but it's damn good writing. 
And it's good to finally have a textual acknowledgement of what we've known all along. Anya deserves better. But supervillains want reward without labor. To make things come easy, it's wrong. Our triumvirate big bad for the season is absent from this episode, but I did want to call out some particularly astute writing from the opening. We go to familiar territory with the Anya is a capitalist stuff, but if you actually listen to what Anya is saying about supervillains, it's pretty dead on. In typewriter manifesto language, she explains that the essential problem with supervillains is that they want reward without labor. They want a shortcut to power. And I thought this was really smart. In a season that is a meditation on the destructive consequences of unearned power, this funny little diatribe has heavier thematic weight than you'd expect. And I really enjoyed it. It's people! It's people! My final thoughts on this episode are that while I respect what it's trying to do and as reference or satire, it's pretty fun. It feels like too much reference, not enough Buffy. That said, there are some really great moments. And of course, it's funny because Jane Espenson is never not delightful. Do I like it better than I remember liking it? Yeah, absolutely. Has it gone up a lot of notches in my estimation? Uh, A few. I don't mind references in Buffy, but it's not what I go to Buffy for, so in the end, it's never going to be a favorite for me. Still, there are some great moments here, not the least of which is a fun turn by Kirsten Nelson as the new manager who gives Buffy back her job, lest Buffy spill the beans that the meat is actually vegetables. Thanks so much. I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and I may be dead, but at least I'm still pretty. See you later. Still Pretty is a chipperish media production and is entirely patron-supported. To find out how you can keep us in production, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Still Pretty.